And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. When did the Americans say enough? That's coming right up. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here in Toronto today. Monday, opening up another week of the bridge right here. And the Monday topics, as always, are Middle East and Ukraine with Janice Stein. We're going to get to that in a minute. Just wanted to let you know if I, uh, if my voice sounds a little hoarse, it's because the uh, the book tour is finally over. And after talking about uh, our new book, that's Mark Bulgich and myself, and How Canada Works is the name of the book. After talking about that book for the last 10 days in places right across the country, you know, different spots, Halifax, Winnipeg, Calgary. We're supposed to get to Ottawa, didn't make that weather-wise and uh, some issues with the uh, aircraft that day. Uh, but also uh, through all kinds of spots in uh, in southern Ontario. Uh, over the weekend, Kitchener and Orangeville. Last week before we went to... Uh, traveling by air to a couple of spots in the country. It was uh, Sarnia, London, um, Oakville, Burlington, and, of course, in Toronto. So it's been a busy last 10 days. Uh, lots of uh, speeches, lots of getting the opportunity to uh, meet with those who'd come out to uh, events in all these locations, and some big ones, a couple of hundred, 300, 400 in, in one spot. Um and that's great. That That's really wonderful uh, to see and to witness and to be involved with. Uh, the people came out to hear about the book, ask questions about the book, but also just generally to, you know, have the opportunity. Um, I guess they were looking forward to the opportunity of talking to me and asking me questions about different things, including um, the media these days, journalism these days. And that's always great. I like that opportunity uh, to have those conversations. I was, I was, I got to tell you, I was taken aback by the number of those who came to these events who said they listened to the bridge and they have their favorite, you know, moments on the bridge each week. Could be the random ranter, could be Janice Stein, could be Chantal and Bruce. Um, there was a lot of that. And to have that opportunity with people of, I got to tell you, all ages. There were young people, middle-aged people, elderly people. Um, and they all talked about having become kind of fans of the bridge. And that's nice. Some new fans just heard about the podcast in the last few months. Others who'd been there since the beginning, almost three years now. Uh, so all of that was really nice to see. Really nice to have the opportunity to meet these people and to hear that. And it made me feel good about doing the bridge, the opportunity that I have, thanks to SiriusXM, uh, and thanks to you as well. So we'll keep it going. Enough on that. Of course, you can still pick up the book. It's a great Christmas gift. And you can find it at uh, your favorite bookstore. You can get it online. How Canada Works by myself and Mark Bulgich. 
Okay, the Monday episode of The Bridge, we have been trying to focus and have focused on Ukraine for the last almost two years now. But since October 7th, we've also been dealing with the situation um, in Israel and Gaza. And that story is not going away. Um, And it's a difficult one to follow. It's a difficult one to watch. It's a difficult one to read about. So we've been awfully lucky to have Janice Stein, um, Monk School, University of Toronto, Middle East analyst, conflict management analyst, um, somebody who's talked to by governments and businesses literally around the world for her understanding and expertise and knowledge on these situations. So uh, we have her with us again today, and we're going to get started with that conversation right now. All right, Janice, where are we now as we uh, as we enter the third month? I still think, Peter, that this active fighting phase, um, we are in the last few weeks of it. You know, there are leaks all over the place, um, as there inevitably are. And I'm certainly hearing out of the Biden administration three weeks more at the most uh, within a real push on Israel, and this is going to be a story when it happens, uh, a real push to pull back, um, which Israel has said it will not do, but to pull back and and launch raids, targeted raids to go after individual Hamas leaders. If they're saying three weeks, you and I know there's some slippage there, but we are in the final phase of this Active fighting, Peter. So Doesn't mean that the issues will be resolved, but I think we're. I'd be shocked if this is still going uh, by the end of January. Frankly, so they're they're losing patience. But what is the hammer they have? Is it all about money and? and- oh, they have a huge hammer. They have a huge hammer, and it's it's so interesting. You listen to the rhetoric, because um, Tony Blinken. Uh, it was on the Sunday morning shows this morning, and you listen to the rhetoric, and it's, well, we never tell our allies what to do, except... When we tell them what to do. When we tell them what to do, right? And he's telling them what to do. There's a, a an almost steely quality in his voice now that wasn't there. First of all, there's, as you say, money. Uh, but that's the least of it. Secondly is ammunition. And you saw them just short-circuit... Uh, the normal process in, in in Congress to get ammunition resupply, that's urgent. Um, it always is. And thirdly, they veto resolutions in the Security Council. <laughs> they have a huge hammer. If they were, frankly, if they run into opposition and they and this has happened before, they don't use their veto. That in itself uh, is a game changer, frankly. You know, and I don't think Blinken wants to come to that. And uh, fortunately, it's not only Netanyahu. There's Benny Gantz as well, who would not want to see it come to this. Um, and you know, it's interesting, Peter, because we asked me this question. Um, I I only had one other piece. There's two wars going on, at least. There's the war above ground. <laughs> in which gas and civilians, Palestinian civilians are paying just this horrific price. And there's the war underground where Hamas leaders, 
and many of their top people are in tunnels and fighters pop out um you know and that's what has been going on these last few days where you get fierce battles when fighters pop out but the leaders don't and if i know this active phase is coming to an end the top leadership of hamas knows it's coming to an end too and their strategy has to be just wait this out underground wait this out another three to four weeks I, what I find hard to understand, I guess, is, I, I, I mean, Gaza is has descended into this living hell. I mean, it, absolutely. It, it, you know, there's thousands of deaths. The humanitarian aid process is not working in any level as, as well as it needs to work. So when we say another that the Americans will kind of put up with, with it for another few weeks, I don't understand how they can put up with it for another few days. I mean, they are, they are both not only Israel, but the Americans losing the, the PR battle on this. You can just see it in the streets of America and to a degree Canada um, that, uh, that it, you know, it is not going their way. Um, and, and I just don't understand how they can keep it going. You know, Peter, you're right. Uh, they are losing the information war and the reality is awful. Uh, it's not only the images, the reality is just awful. Uh, so how do they frame this? Um, and it's, it, they frame it the following way, and this connects up two conversations you and I have. You know, an ally of theirs was attacked. Um, so it's all about the message that the world gets. If they curtail um, Israel's capacity to respond uh, to an attack. What message does that send to Russia over Ukraine? What message does that send to China over Taiwan? So for them, especially for Jake Sullivan, it's situated in a much larger context. So they keep walking this fine line. Yes, Israel has a right to respond, but how they do it matters. And that's true, but it ignores the reality that you and I just talked about. There's a war above the ground in the most densely populated place on earth, literally, and among the poorest, and there's a war underground. So when the Americans talk about, look, we did better in Fallujah, or we did better in Mosul, yeah, they were fighting block by block, but there was no underground. The underground is a real game changer in this war, which limits the capacity, frankly, to succeed, as we've said right from the beginning. Um, so it's, I think now it's a question of when they think it's their message will not be misunderstood internationally, because the political costs for the Biden administration for this to keep going are astronomical, frankly, within his own party. And they want this to stop. Let me ask you a question about uh, it's the old question of what to believe and who to believe, really. But it boils down to two things in, in terms of numbers. You have the uh, health authorities in Gaza who are controlled by Hamas uh, putting out a number that says it, it's upwards of 17,000 now who have been killed right. in Gaza, and many of them women and children. You have the Israeli Defense Force saying that they have killed um, 7,000 Hamas, right. fighters, terrorists, call them what you what you wish. Um, do you believe either of those numbers? 
it's so hard to know, frankly. So, you, you know, can I, what I say to, to you and to our listeners, these are trustworthy numbers. No, no. Uh, and there's no um, there's not a lot of capacity on the ground. But let's for a moment believe the numbers. Right. <laughs> let's just believe them for a minute because we don't have any other numbers. So 7,000 out of 40,000 fighters that Hamas has at a cost of two to one for every fighter, you're killing two civilians because that's what those numbers really say. Um, So if you 17,000 take away seven, that's 10,000 civilians for 7,000 fighters killed. Well, I'm, I'm not, wholly surprised by that, Peter, given that you're fighting in in what is a large city, right? A, a, a city of shacks. That's really what it is. And 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 low-rise buildings built. Um and you have Hamas fighters hiding underground, coming out of these tunnels to fight. The ones who survive go back in and the leadership never comes out. Um, that's that's the nature of the battlefield. And that's what I think um, Israel, the IDF clearly underestimated and they shouldn't have because they had they they had really good intelligence about the about the underground tunnels. But that's what even the United States, I think, has gotten wrong here. What are they looking back at? A nine month fight for Fallujah. <laughs> right. With no underground tunnels where you could take your time and you could evacuate neighborhood by neighborhood. That's just not possible here, frankly. So we're having a kind of honestly fictional dialogue here. Right. Uh, which, uh, you know, and the real, the real casualties are Palestinian civilians. Well, as so often happens in war, and it happened in yeah. Iraq, and it happened in Afghanistan, yeah. and it happened, you know, in every war we can we, we yeah. can think about, where you know they call it technically collateral damage, but yeah. it, we're talking civilians, we're talking that's right. women and children that's right. and the elderly right. who are and killed. You know, one of the things that's so clear now that we knew before it Gaza's the young Palestinian, you know, Palestinians in Gaza, youngest population on earth, forty <laughs> percent of the population, the Palestinian population, in Gaza are kids, right? So if you're if you're killing two civilians, if there are two civilians dying for every fighter, that means one child. Because it's forty percent, and so that's why the numbers are more or less make sense to me when I look at the underlying demogra- demographics here. But there's no win in sight here, Peter. Right? And and you know one other thing we I'm, we might add to the story. I mean, there's not. I've been arguing right from the beginning. There was not a win here um, for Israel military strategy. There's not much of a win for Hamas either. Although there's a lot of argument going on. In, in the Arab press and Palestinian press about this. Because on the one hand, you hear, well, this is a huge victory for, for Hamas because it it destroyed this myth of Israeli competence, military competence, both in the surprise and in the response. And look, Hamas leaders are going to survive this attack. You know, at, at least half of them will survive this attack. That's an enormous victory. You're hearing somewhat different memories 
murmurings coming out and largely on Twitter um, from Palestinians when they get connectivity in Gaza. And the storyline there is a little different. It's Hamas doesn't care one bit about Palestinians. That's that line. There's a war above ground and a war below ground actually comes from a Palestinian living in Gaza who says they're not fighting. They're protected. They're in tunnels. They have food. They have fuel. It's a population. It's a Palestinian population. They don't care. They're not interested in welfare. And that's those voices are louder now um, than I've heard them largely because Hamas is not on the streets, right? The fighters are in the tunnels. So you can say things like that um, and feel less frightened about saying it than you normally would. I want to uh, just for a minute go back to um, something that uh, the Israeli side and those who support Israel have said has been overlooked, basically covered up about October 7th. And that was uh, the sexual violence that was used, and, and and there seems to be overwhelming evidence that it was used by Hamas against uh, young Israeli women uh, who were captured and killed and murdered and raped um, on October seventh. Uh, they tried again this week, uh, this past week, to uh, in in New York and elsewhere to try and show evidence of this to people. Um, and to interested parties and to the UN, uh, but it their feeling is that this is the, this element of what happened on o- October seventh is just being overlooked, ignored, basically by everybody, including the media. Although CNN has done a heck of a job in trying to put this story forward. Um, what, what is the problem here? Why is this issue overlooked? If in fact it is. There's no question, Peter, that this has been overlooked. Um, It is a horrific story. Um, I was asked to watch some of the videos that came from the body cameras uh, of Hamas fighters. And they were authenticated. Uh, And I had to stop. Um, I had to stop. because I have to say I've never seen anything like this um and i had to stop because i knew if i didn't stop i would have those images um and it would be really really difficult so how the un women for example could not make this an issue because rape to rape as an act of war right rape until the woman dies uh, because that's what went on. And men, some men were raped too. It wasn't only women. How they could not raise that uh, right from the beginning. So we had an incident in Canada with a, a woman who's the director of the Center for Sexual Violence who had trouble acknowledging this. How do you explain this? I think you started us off when you said Israel's lost the PR war. Right. And so there's a story of oppressor versus oppressed here that is pervasive and it blinds people. It blinds people to the fact that um, Israel and Israeli women can be victims 
that hostages that were taken and their families can be victims just as much as Palestinian civilians can be victims. And it's astonishing to me, Peter, that you can't hold those two thoughts at the same time, right? That you can't say it is horrendous what has happened to these women beyond horrendous. It's horrendous what is happening to civilians in Gaza. And in that sense, I um, I really worry. I think we've lost our way if we can't say both those things at the same time. Uh, you saw we had an explosion as a result of three presidents, Harvard, MIT, Pennsylvania, who testified before Congress. And, you know, there's a matter of law and then there's a matter of leadership. It's a failure of leadership. It is a failure of leadership. Um, I think when all the evidence is finally brought forward, this will rank. And we've had, you know, it rape as an uh, as a as an act of war it was actually Louise Arbour, a Canadian judge, when she was an international prosecutor, who put this on the global agenda. I think this will. But this will be one of the single worst episodes because it was so deliberate. It was planned. It wasn't just out of control soldiers, unlike other cases. And it was unremitting. It was unremitting. They knew what the objective of the rape was. It was, in many cases, until these women died. All right. Um, after that, we we got to take a... We got to take a quick break and, and, and shift topics to the other thing that we've uh, been trying to keep our eyes on, and that's Ukraine. Uh, and a quick question on that. But first of all, um, this. And welcome back. You're listening to the uh, Monday episode of The Bridge. Janice Stein is our guest, as she has been for the last couple of months on the uh, both the uh, Mideast story and the Ukraine story. Uh, you're listening on SiriusXM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. All right. Uh, Janice, I want, I want a, a quick question before we leave for the day on uh, on the Ukraine situation. There, you know, as the Americans uh, keep dancing around the U.S. Congress on, on aid and arms to Ukraine, there's an increasing feeling um, that this delay if not an outright failure to uh, deliver, um, is shifting the the whole tone of the war. And you've seen in the last few days um, some commentators and analysts writing, Putin is winning and Putin's going yeah. to win. Um, yeah. That the, everything has changed in the last six months um, and certainly in the last three months since the focus so much has been on, on the Middle East. But it's changed to the point where uh, Zelensky and Ukraine is in trouble in terms of carrying on this fight and, uh, you know, maybe even too late to try and find a compromise to get out of it, that Putin is winning. I've worried about this one. You know, I was never optimistic that this was going to be easy for Ukraine because there's such a difference in size and depth. But, after the failed counteroffensive, um, and Ukraine hasn't used everything that it's gotten from from the Americans. They've still got stuff in reserve, but not to be able to get the aid again, Peter. That's a signal, right? <laughs> 
that the Republican wing of the 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 right wing of the Republican parties dug in on this, and that's a signal. And that's what's worrying. So what's happening on the ground? Um, the Russians are now moving into offensive positions in three or four parts along the line, prepared to fight in the muddy season. The Ukrainians are moving into a defensive position. That's not good news. Uh, it's not, and I, I think here's the, the really worrying factor, it's not that if Ukraine doesn't get this aid, it will just go into a defensive crouch and wait it out until next spring. Uh, that's not the Russian script. There's presidential elections in March. Putin would like nothing better than at least a breakthrough on one part of that line. And so much of war uh, is message, morale. Uh, it's it's just as important, frankly, as the things we count. And if it looks like Putin has the momentum here, there's no replacement for U.S. military aid. The Europeans, you know, the United States has given more than half single-handedly alone to Ukraine. And if the United States is seen to falter, um, I think Putin would have every incentive to throw what he has at the battlefield and then just to sit tight and wait for the U.S. presidential election in the fall. And Zelensky... Zelensky is very concerned, and, and as you see the battlefield shifting, the where's the battle going? Right into the politics. So the former mayor of Kiev has come out uh, and criticized Zelensky, and all of a sudden he's fighting two wars at the same time, one of the domestic front and one with Russia. It is very tough. What about um, Western Europe? So Western Europe, and again, you know, there's Western Europe and there's Eastern Europe or Central Europe, and they feel this war very, very differently. I think the Germans would just breathe a sigh of relief, frankly, so they could get back to business if there were some sort of agreement. Uh, I think... You know, the, the 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 Brits will do more, the French will do a little more, um, but the Poles, the Latvians, who really feel this, um, the, you know, and, and those smaller countries can't make up the deficit, Peter. And so they're looking at this, and this ties us back to where we started earlier this morning. They're looking at this and they're saying, what's the message for the future? Is the United States a reliable ally that we can count on? Because if they come to the conclusion the United States is not, there's only one or two, one of two options. You make your peace with Russia, which is the land power in that part of the world. You don't have a choice. Or you ramp up your defense spending and your industrial production because you're very concerned about what lesson Putin draws from this that's why messaging matters yeah i'll say um okay well you know nothing good in what we've had to talk about today i mean it's uh both uh, situations are are difficult and 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 seemingly at a you know kind of hinge point I, Uh, i think the one in the middle east for sure is at a hinge point the hinge isn't going to move fast enough but it's at a hinge point and the one um, and Ukraine, uh, 
the biggest risk is that this stalemate now breaks against Ukraine. That's the worry. Okay, we'll leave it for that this uh, this week. Uh, Janice, thanks so much, as always, for this, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. See you next week. Janice Stein, Monk School at um, the University of Toronto. And, um, man, oh, man, she's so good. Um, and she's so appreciated by 99.9% of you um, who write in and talk about these Mondays with uh, with Dr. Stein and her interpretation and analysis of what's going on, uh, both in these cases of the uh, situation in the Middle East and in Ukraine. Uh, it's a difficult story to cover. It's a difficult story to um, convince everybody that you're being as fair and as unbiased as you possibly can in talking about it and analyzing it. There are always going to be some who are upset about uh, what they hear. And I, I get that. I understand that. I've heard that for, well, ever since I first started covering uh, the Middle East, especially uh, for the last 50 years. Um, but I, I'll tell you of all the people, all the analysts I've talked to in different parts of the world, um, I hold uh, Janice uh, up as the example of, trying to do her best to help us understand this story and the stakes of, of what's going on. Listening to her talk about the troubles she had watching those images uh, from October 7th, um, you know, it, uh, it, you know, it, well, you know what I'm trying to say. It's a very difficult story to cover. Okay, we're going to, uh, we have a bit of time. And so I want to, uh, I want to really, you know, to change the temperature, uh, bring things uh, down a bit with a couple of end bits to uh, give you something else to think about on this day. Um, here's one, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but some of my favorite, you know, childhood memories about the season that we're heading into the holiday season, the Christmas season, um, involve, uh, you know, around the tree. And, the you know, the, the purchase of the tree, the decoration of the tree. I think I was probably, I don't think it was until we came to Canada. I mean, I was born in England and, and you know, we spent a few years in Malaya and Southeast Asia. Um, either we never had a tree in those days or I was too young to remember it. So my first memories of a tree were growing up in Ottawa, uh, living on Holland Avenue in Ottawa. And, um, you know, and our, our, our first, I mean, when we came to Canada, like I had no idea of anything in terms of, uh, of how, you know, you kind of looked after your garden. I mean, I was so excited to be able to cut the grass that I made my parents let me use some scissors to go out and cut grass for the for the first time. We didn't have a lawnmower yet, so I was out there with a with a pair of a pair of scissors. Um, but the tree, you know, having the tree come home, you know, having picked it out a little tree lot, and in those days, you know, you could buy a tree for a buck. I mean, they weren't very expensive, but it was exciting. You know, and trying to getting a stand or the thing would 
be straight and worrying about how you're going to get water for it and, and all that. I mean, those, those were wonderful, you know, kind of family moments. And for many people, they still are. Although the trees, you know, cost a lot more than they did then. That's for sure. But I saw this story as an end bit. New York Times, got a lot of the stories out of the New York Times, no doubt about it. Not exclusively, not only that. But I'm assuming we read, we all read most of the Canadian papers, so I don't want to read stuff you've already seen before. But the New York Times wanted to try and determine what the situation is between real trees and fake trees. So they sent uh, one of their reporters out to do the definitive Christmas tree story. And Alison Kruger was the one who got the short straw on that assignment. But she did a terrific job. Um, Here's some facts in it. According to polling by the American Christmas Tree Association, (laughs) I I never knew there was an American Christmas Tree Association, but I do now. But in the research the ACTA did, They found that 77% of people who have at least one Christmas tree this year are going fake. They're getting a fake tree. 77%. The data found that people like how easy fake trees are, are to set up, that no maintenance is required, and that the trees look consistent and pretty throughout the holiday season. Ben Fruman of Wirecutter, which is owned by the New York Times, said its guide to the best artificial Christmas trees was one of its most read product reviews last month, out of a catalog of more than a thousand reviews. But the popularity of fake trees isn't necessarily great news for the environment. Bill Lindbergh, a horticulture expert at Michigan State University, See, I told you she did her research, right? Said there were environmental and economical benefits to having a real tree. Artificial trees are made of plastic that will eventually end up in a landfill. Real trees are renewable resources and can be mulched up and returned to the ground, he said. But if you're going to opt for an artificial tree, he said the best thing you could do is used the same one over and over. There was a study done that compared the environmental impacts of a real tree versus a fake tree. It showed that if you kept your artificial tree for eight years, that is basically when you start to break even. If you keep it for longer, he added, this is our friend Bill Lindbergh, if you keep it for longer, you could be helping the environment. Other factors also drive fake trees' popularity. Some people like how cost-effective it is to buy one tree that can be reused for decades. Our real Christmas tree that was six or seven feet was $300, said one of the people that uh, the Times talked to, which would be an expensive annual tradition. Our fake tree was $500, and then we get to put it in storage for next year. There's also the fact that many fake trees now look remarkably real. 
Home Depot's Grand Duchess is an artificial seven and a half foot balsam fir that comes with 250 color changing lights. It became known as the viral Christmas tree on TikTok. Company says it's already sold out for this season. What do you use? I can't believe 77%. I don't believe that number. I know that in our home in Stratford, there is not a chance that Cynthia would have a fig tree as the main tree, you know, the, the tree where you sort of gather around at Christmas. There is not a chance. It is a major moment of the calendar year when Cynthia goes out looking for a Christmas tree. And then the whole thing of, you know, bringing it home, getting it into the house, onto a stand, etc., etc. It is a thing. Now, we have a fake tree, not that she agreed to it, but a fake tree for use if we're kind of trapped in Toronto in our uh, a little condo here because we have to have, um, you know, a lot of work assignments end up in Toronto. Um, so there's a fake one there or here. But it, it um, well, we're not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I, you know, how do you feel about this tree issue? Because that number to me, I wasn't even, I wouldn't have even mentioned this story except for that number, according to the ACTA, the American Christmas Tree Association, that 77% of people who have at least one Christmas tree this year are going fake. All right. Time for one other end bit. You've probably seen this over the years, over many years. Basically, over every, every year since the end of the Second World War, the places in Europe and the United Kingdom, you know, when they do a construction site, they find something that looks like an old bomb that was dropped either by the Luftwaffe on the UK or by the RAF or the U.S. Air Force or the RCAF over uh, different parts of Europe that didn't explode upon impact. And so there's a big deal. They, you know, shut off the area. They bring in the bomb disposal people and try to, you know, excavate the thing and then go blow it up somewhere. So... (laughs) Here's a story from the BBC. Catherine Evans of BBC News writes this. A couple who kept an old naval shell as a garden ornament said it was like the passing of an old friend when it was detonated by a bomb disposal team. It had been outside the home of Sean and Jeffrey Edwards in Milford Haven, Pembrokeshire, and is sought to date from the late 19th century. The couple had thought it was a dummy with no charge. The Ministry of Defense said it removed a 64-pound bomb that was a naval projectile. 
Mrs. Edwards said she used to bang it with her trowel to remove earth after gardening. But last Wednesday, yeah, last Wednesday, a police officer knocked on the door to tell the couple he'd spotted it and would need to alert the Ministry of Defense. An hour later, he told the shocked couple the bomb squad would arrive the next day. It was a sleepless night for Mr. and Mrs. Edwards, who had been told the whole street might need to be evacuated. We didn't sleep a wink all night. It knocked us for six, said Mr. Edwards. I told the bomb disposal unit we're not leaving the house. We're staying here. If it goes up, we're going to go up with it. Test proved it was live, but with only a tiny amount of charge. It was taken to a disused quarry in Wallens Castle, covered with five tons of sand, and blown up. After living in the street since he was three years old, 77-year-old Mr. Edwards said he was sad to see it go. It was an old friend. I'm so sorry that the poor old thing was blown to pieces. Now, you don't just get any news right here on the bridge. You get the important stuff. And there you go. Got another one coming up at some point this week. I love this one. You know me in aviation. Here's the question. Well, it's not the question. It's the answer. Almost half the men surveyed think they could land a passenger plane. Experts disagree. We'll tell you that story somewhere. Somewhere this week. I'm not sure when, but I love this story. That's it for this day. Tomorrow, we got a special More Butts conversation, and it's a classic. I recorded it this weekend. It's really good. Gerald Butts, former principal secretary to Justin Trudeau. James Moore, former cabinet minister for Stephen Harper. If you've listened to the More Butts conversations over the last year and a half, they are good. These two uh, gentlemen who can be, in most of their lives, extremely partisan, uh, back off from the partisan game and try to take us inside the world of politics. And they do it uh, by being extremely informative, but also by telling us anecdotes of past experiences that underline the topic we have for the day. Tomorrow's topic is going to be about polling and how it impacts inside the political parties. It's a really good discussion, and I hope you'll be there to listen to it. That's tomorrow. Wednesday uh, is Smoke Mirrors the Truth with Bruce. Thursday, your turn. So if you have some thoughts on anything you've heard today or tomorrow, drop me a line. Um, at the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Random Ranter is by on Thursday as well. Friday is Good Talk with Chantel and Bruce. And if you have a moment to spare this week, head to the bookstore. <laughs> How Canada Works. Mark Bulgich and myself. It's our new book. Uh, it's been on the bestseller chart for the last two weeks since it was released. So we're pretty proud of that fact. And we hope you get your opportunity to read it as well. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. 